0: I just think that that brings me the most joy is being able to, um, yeah, creating a creating a community and a space for people to have a really nice life and time in. Um, that's just, I don't, nothing can compare to that feeling of, of someone having a great time with
1: you. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Hospitality encompasses much more than just food and service. In Australia, the bar scene has changed exponentially in the last decade with an array of operators changing the nightlife of our major cities. What does it take to run multiple bars with various offerings and maintain the groundswell? Daisy Tully is the general manager of the Mucho Group in Sydney. Daisy, how are you?
0: I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. How are you going?
1: I'm good. It's great to get you on the show. You've got some ripping venues there in Sydney that have been part of the sort of changing of the fabric of the nightlife in Sydney. How are things going?
0: Things are busy, uh, which is great. Um, Pretty pretty intense at the moment. We're about to open another venue in February. Um, So obviously operating for existing venues, trying to build a new one and also having a... Uh, a seltzer, which goes more bananas in summer. It's all kind of, it's all kind of peaking at the moment.
1: <laughs> How much has has things changed? You know, we're all aware of the COVID bubble and the impact that it had. But is is the bar scene different as a result?
0: Um, I don't feel like it's different, but I do feel like other areas have been activated in Sydney since COVID. So obviously the CBD was, you know, and this kind of surrounds of CBD were where you went out. Pre COVID, um, and because of COVID and working from home, other areas in Sydney have have been activated. For instance, um, you know Newtown and more and that's where our latest bar—that's the latest bar we've opened—is there. And that was that was a reaction to COVID. So you can see, and more Road is um, is now pumping, um, and it's still pumping even though people have have returned to work. It's still just become a precinct. So that's great.
1: Tell us a little bit about the group and the different venues that you have.
0: Yeah, so we opened T.O.'s um, about 12, 12, 13 years ago in Surrey Hills. Um, that was kind of a, obviously an agave tequila venue, more casual. Um, and over the years, um, Alex and Jeremy, who founded the business, have opened um, uh, all kind of different venues. They went After T.O.'s, they went the Cliff Dive on Oxford Street, which is a R&B and hip-hop nightclub. Um, I don't think they expected it to become an R&B and hip-hop nightclub, but that's what it is now. Um, and then Cantina OK, which has obviously been one of the world's 50 best bars, um, that was a reaction to doing the cliff dive, such a large venue. They were like, well, you know what, stuff this, we're going to do a really small venue, um, not what people would expect, saw the space and, um, that obviously works really well and gave us, I suppose, gave us the legs to then, um, do more interesting projects like Bar Planet and then the new bar that's coming. Um, so, yeah, different different, different kind of venues, um, but all, all interesting venues and we, I don't, yeah, we, we really love every single venue.
1: They are all quite different. How do, you, how do you think of a new concept to sort of fit into a location or a market and keeping things quite different to the previous venues?
0: So, Jeremy Blackmore is our creative director so he's usually the vision with concepts but it doesn't it, it's it's not really the the chicken or the egg it's it's um it can be yeah, it can be the area we go, hey, this we want to open something on a more road. Um, oh we we can see that site, that site looks good, the land looks looks landlord seems really nice. Okay, well let's what about this concept to put into that bar? Or it can go the other way, we want to do this concept in the city, let's find the space. So it's it's happened both ways. Uh, we're kind of flexible in that approach. We just don't want to um, I suppose force what we think would work on you know the the area we we look at an area and we're we're kind of flexible with what we feel um, would work in that area.
1: How does food fit into the different offerings that you have in different businesses?
0: We don't really do food. yeah we we're, we're very much um, spirit as a co- we're cocktail cocktail venues um eighty, eighty percent cocktails across all the venues, and we do obviously offer nachos at Teos, but that's only to kind of keep people in and keep people drinking. And um yeah, I think that food is it, it, it food freaks me out. I actually say food is fucked. I never want to do food. I'm sorry. I I love food. Um, But it's in a business sense. I just I just can't I just can't relate to wanting to operate with it.
1: 80% uh, cocktails across the group is pretty huge. Um, Tell us a bit about that program there and how it's different in the different venues.
0: So we kind of realized that our I suppose our edge or our you know superpower was was cocktails um I think that was around, you know, when Tio's, Tio's was opening and the margarita obviously took over the cheap shots and toccates and then at Cantino we were talking about mezcal, but then it became about the margaritas. And I think at that point we were like, okay, cocktails is what we do best. Obviously, you if you produce a, you know, a unique cocktail, no one can get it anywhere else. That's unique to you and your business and that's why people come to that business is to drink that cocktail. Um, different to serving up obviously a bottled wine or beer or, you know, you can get it at many different venues. Um, so f- I think that was a pretty conscious decision when we saw the cocktails were so successful at Cantina to go, okay, well, every venue um, it, it needs to lead with a hero cocktail. And that was, that was also from uh, my, I suppose, my, um, my goal from a marketing sense as well. So when we opened Bar Planet, it could have easily been another cocktail bar on a more road. But I was like, I want it to be a martini bar on Emu Road. I think focusing on that that one hero cocktail, people can understand the concept. They go, okay, cool. That's what they offer: martinis. I can I can interact with that. Even if I don't like martinis, I understand what it is. Therefore, I know how to engage with that business. So that's kind of what we've kind of what we've ran with now. You know, Cantina Okay, margaritas, Tio's, margaritas. Now the martinis at Bar Planet. We'll see what comes next.
1: You've travelled across the world, uh, which we'll get to shortly, quite in depth. But how does sort of Sydney compare in that sort of cocktail and bar sense to the sort of big cities of the world that you've been to?
0: So the big cities of the world that I've been to were all under 21. So I (laughs) have not experienced the (laughs) cocktail scene around the world. Um, Yeah, so I did travel a lot. In my childhood and then I obviously travelled a lot through music from 18 to 21, um, I then fell pregnant at 22 and um, I have been basically trapped in Sydney since um that's obviously been the last kind of 10 to 12 years so I I actually don't know what the cocktail scene is anywhere else I obviously hear things from other people coming back and uh the thing I hear the most is that our service is just next level you go anywhere else in the world and the service is just not up to the Australian scratch which is um I suppose amazing to hear but I should um yeah now the kids are old enough I really need to get out more
1: You've got an interesting road to hospitality. Um, take us to that sort of period where you know you're you're in a band and you went on tour a lot. How, how did that all begin and and what was that like?
0: So I started playing the violin at five. Um, My mum was adamant that all three of us girls played the violin and the piano. um, And I played the violin and piano everywhere we moved. Um, It got to – we moved to Sydney when I was about 15, 16. I ended up getting into Newtown Performing Arts, obviously for the violin. Um, Met a few other girls that were into music they became my best friends. We jammed all the time. That's the only way we spent our time was jamming. We didn't actually even consider that we were in a band or bands were cool or whatever, you know, we, we had absolutely no care about what was going on around us. Um, so we spent our time making music and obviously that was bringing us a huge amount of joy in, keeping us out of trouble which I'm sure our parents were into and then we played we just played a show through a kind of youth organization that one of us was part of and it just built from there and it just it just um yeah it was just it just never ended we we played one show it led to someone else someone booked us for another show and then we were playing, you know, every venue in Sydney before the time we were 18. I was playing at the Inmore Theatre, Annandale. We were touring. Um, yeah, most of us hadn't finished school and were doing national tours. We felt like we were, we, we used to say we were like Sailor Moon, you know. We were, we were at school during the day and fighting crimes at night. But I remember walking from Newtown from school, walking to Enmore Theatre to do sound check in my school uniform, um, and then playing playing at the More Theatre that night and then waking up in the morning and having to go back to school. It was um, it was a very it was a very weird time and it uh, it was very dislocating, I think, for us because we obviously no longer fit in with the 16 to 18 year olds anymore at school. But then we were too too, too young to party with the, the musicians that we were actually hanging out with. And we had to leave venues after we played and our parents had to attend. And yeah, it, we just we just existed in a weird world alone. But lucky, I suppose lucky we had each other.
1: Well, Bradzilla became quite a big uh, band and you went on tour globally. Do you have any stories of, of favourite stories from your tours?
0: Um, favourite stories, I, the first one that comes to mind right now is that we're playing um, ATP, All Tomorrow's Parties, um were probably the most amazing festivals we played. So we played one in Mount Buller in Victoria. That was obviously curated by Nick Cave, and he he booked us to play that. And I um, had a signature violin move that I would, um, in a particular song at a particular time. I'm so, so curated. I would do this. I would do this back bend, and I did this back bend playing the violin. And then I just saw Nick Cave upside down watching me. And I just remember being like, "Wow, this is a moment, isn't it?" That Nick Cave is standing side of stage watching me play the violin. That was pretty crazy. Um, but yeah, and then we played ATP in upper State New York, and just being part of the bands and you know meeting the bands that were on the roster there. And this old, this old really strange abandoned Jewish hotel with the empty pool. And I don't. I mean, there's I played. I mean with Pulp in in front of 25,000 people headlining splendor Jarvis Cocker Jarvis Cocker called me th- in the middle of uni class being like, "Hey, this is Jarvis Cocker. Would you like to play violin on an Australian tour with us?" I actually didn't know who Jarvis Cocker was at that stage because I think I'd, you know, missed the 90s. I was I was a child. But um I was like so it's yeah, it's interesting looking back then I was so relaxed about where we where I was in or who I was hanging out with, I didn't think anything of it. I was like, oh, yeah, sweet, I'll, I'll play at the Horton Pavilion and tour and do Splendor with you guys, like, no problem. Um, I ended up dating one of the band members in Pulp. He flew me over to London for two weeks, and then I ended up going on an Irish tour with Pulp. And, um, yeah, I don't know. There's some strange things happen, but uh, only only looking back, they seem strange.
1: How did you make the transition to hospitality and, and let go of that world?
0: Uh, it's called falling pregnant at 22. Um, <laughs> so we, yeah, I fell pregnant three months into a relationship at 22. We played our last show when I was 27 weeks pregnant at the Oxford Arts Factory. It was sold out. I had a huge bump, um, pregnancy bump, obviously. and. Um, yeah, I, I I had a kid at 23, and um, my so I will I will give you all the hot goss. My husband, Alex Dowd, opened TOS with Jeremy Blackmore, so he is one of the founders of Mucho, and he um yeah he was 25, I was 23, dating three months, fell pregnant. He ran TOS, and then I entered the business when the cliff dive was struggling. So I think the cliff dive was probably two or three years old. I had a four year old and an eight month old at that time. And I kind of said to him, look, just let me have a go. Just let me have a go at the cliff dive. I've obviously got a bit of entertainment experience. um, Obviously not a nightclub, any nightclub experience, any R&B and hip hop experience. But I just kind of threw myself into the family business as it felt. And um, I deep-dived on the R&B and and hip hop scene, um, even got threatened to be bashed by a, by a R&B and hip-hop promoter from King's Cross. Um, and I was like, only if they knew I was just a daggy mum from Marrickville. Um, <laughs> but I ended up making the cliff dive uh, through, you know, lots and lots of changes and a lot of time spent there, really successful. And at that point, Alex and Jeremy which I think they were pretty shocked, obviously, because Alex, I remember him saying to me, sure, have a go, but you know nothing about business. And I turning that business around, they went, Oh shit, okay, maybe she's actually, you know, can do <laughs> can help. So they they um they pushed me across the rest of the group in a marketing sense. So then I started looking after Cantina OK, TOs, the Cliff Dive. All the marketing, all the socials. I um, really took a kind of outsider's approach to all of that. Um, I don't think that hospitality marketing has ever. I just it's not a strength. I'm not sure why, especially in the small bar scene. Um, but I I approached it. I approached it as obviously I I was a brand. I knew what a brand was. You know, I was a brand at sixteen. That, that people had to try and sell. I knew that anything and anyone is a brand. Even if you don't want to be a brand, that's a brand in itself. Being anti-brand is a brand. Um, so I knew that the Cliff Dive had to be a brand. I knew it had that a personality had to be attached to that brand, and I knew that I had to distill that brand into a simple a simple sentence on, you know, back to the Sydney's R&B and hip hop club. Something simple that people understood and could engage with. So that kind of just worked and it kept working. It worked at Tio's and then it worked at Cantina and Got into the top 50 best and I, um, did mar- I was the marketing director up until six months ago.
1: Was there a time when you sort of, you're in the role and you sort of overcame some challenges and really found your feet and saw that you could sort of do what you've done?
0: So the only – I've got, I've got really, really bad imposter syndrome. Um, multifactorial, it's obviously, you know, started off as my husband's business, so I'm the wife of, which doesn't give me a lot of respect from anyone. Employees, industry, I'm a woman, they don't want to talk to me. They want to talk to Alex um, or the boys, you know. I want to talk to the boys. So it took a long time for me to feel like I had space um, and the confidence to do what I can, what I'm actually capable of doing. And I still struggle with confidence To today. The only way I've been, I've managed to get into this situation is actually because of a business consultant. So we got a business consultant in in February, March this year, Rebecca Bernstone, who was the GM, she was the GM of Two Providores. And she's – she, we got her in because of my – I think my building resentment that I was kind of managing the business from inside out. Do you know what I mean? I was was getting paid as a marketing director. I was getting the respect of a marketing director from the industry and everyone. But I was really across every single thing that happened in the business um, and was working equally as hard or harder than Alex and Jeremy, but no one kind of knew – um, and they you know they're like but you've always got to sit at the table and we really respect your opinion but that all that's all well and good unless I suppose everyone starts respecting you So she kind of recognized that that was happening and has helped us restructure the whole business this year. So this year's probably been the biggest year we've ever had at Mucho and hopefully the biggest year we'll have. For the next decade, to be honest, because it's every element of it has changed. So she pushed me being like, you're capable of being general manager, you already are, Daisy, you're already doing what a general manager would do, you just not got the title, the pay or the respect. So she pushed me into Alex and Jeremy. I'm. I am lucky that I suppose they've been so flexible to step aside and let me shine in a sense. And I'm. You know, I'm really appreciative of, of that. Um, but yeah, it's really down to her that um, that I'm in this situation.
1: What impact has that structural change and also that recognition had on sort of that sense that you have of imposter syndrome?
0: Um. I suppose I'm learning to back myself, um, I'm learning that I'm, I'm actually quite capable. <laughs> I, I know that, <laughs> see, I even still find it shocking to even say that my gut instinct and the way I um, operate is, is, yeah, is enough, um, is enough for this world and enough for this role. Um, so it's just, I suppose it's just a slow process of me building up the confidence um, to... To not feel so anxious at night when I've made a decision in the business and to be able to sleep.
1: It's probably too hard to sort of expand upon fully in a, in a podcast, but give us a sense of what your role encompasses now that you are general manager and across the group and opening new venues. What's the sort of day-to-day like for you?
0: Day-to-day is becoming meetings to meetings, back-to-back. Which is good. I'm a very organized person. Um, I like to tick off tasks. I like to be in the same spot. I love, I love things to be predictable and to, for things to progress. So this role 100% suits me. Um, but my day-to-day is just basically being across what everyone's doing, delegating appropriately, prioritizing appropriately, and making sure we're all heading in the same direction and communicating that effectively. Um, it sounds really, wait, are you still there? You are, sorry, I was worried that you um, cut out again. Um, it sounds maybe really simple, I suppose, but I suppose when there's so many different moving parts and there's 60 people to lead, um, you know, I call it the mucho bus, get onto the mucho bus and I'm driving. Um, and I hope it's a happy and healthy and empathetic bus, you know, um, and making it happy and healthy and empathetic, um, is a lot of, yeah, is a lot of work and day to day. It's a lot of little things that are, that are, you know, building that bus to look nice and shiny.
1: How do you maintain that positive culture? You know, the working hours of people in bars is usually when everyone else is having fun. So how, how do you sort of maintain, um, maintain that with the group?
0: I think just with a lot of empathy. I lead with empathy. Um, you know, they come into the meetings and they've had a late night. I'm like, wow, you must be so tired. Are you guys all right? Um, you know, it's a lot, understanding what they're doing. Um, I think it's just as simple as that and I don't know little things like not booking booking meetings with them when when it suits or understanding that that's the day off promoting for them to have time off like I want to have a few days off next week to you know I have you know for instance if someone hasn't had leave for a, for a few months and they're like oh but I'm a bit nervous about getting back and I'm like take the time we'll sort it you know have that time Um, it is a hectic job I suppose we're very we're also very aware of their hours and then booking overtime and um, you know very aware of supporting them so there's no burnout Um, yeah it all comes back down to empathy doesn't it leading with empathy
1: Absolutely. You've been um, integral in creating some of the best bars in Sydney and also recognised globally as well. What does it take to make a great bar?
0: Being relentless. (laughs) (laughs) I am relentless. And I'm really good at noticing when people aren't doing a good job or aren't, you know what I mean? Like I can spot it very easily. I don't know how, but I suppose because I'm so across things on such a micro level, um, you know, people just, you can't miss things if you want to have a high-quality product. Things have to be delivered by a certain time. They have to, you have to, yeah, there's a structure to everything. There's a process. I'm constantly, I'm relentlessly trying to make the processes and procedures and much more efficient and effective. Obviously, to save people time, um, to make it a happier and healthier culture, and to progress, Um, I think you just can't take your foot off the gas, and yeah, you just have to be relentless every day. You're just constantly getting slightly better. It's exhausting. People find well, people find me exhausting. It's the only way I operate. Um, But even you know, my husband Alex and Jeremy, they're just like, oh, just give it a break.
1: Uh, you you mentioned a little earlier about how you turned around the fortunes of Cliff Dive and that expanded to roles across the group. How, how do you take a sort of venue that sort of needs some support like that and change to, to make that – like Cliff Dive perhaps as an example, what did you do to make it the success that it became?
0: You just – you spend a lot of time there, you spend a lot of time with the community, you spend a lot of time with the staff and you ask a lot of questions. This is the other thing that I do, I ask everyone a lot of questions. I can't believe that people don't ask questions. You need to learn (laughs) in order to grow and if you can't ask questions and learn, you can't grow as a business, as a person, as a leader. Um, so I just spent a lot of time there and I, 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 asked a lot of questions. I asked every single person that I saw, you know, that was coming down, um, regularly. I was like, Hey, how are you going? How, why, why do you come to the cliff dive? Where else do you go? What do you like about the music? You know, Oh, you like that DJ? Cool. I knew nothing about R&B and hip hop. I knew nothing about nightclubs. I'll say that again, but going into that business and asking everyone as many questions as I could pretty quickly gave me a, gave me a good idea of what needed working on um i obviously i I, I changed everything i changed the branding i i obviously changed the voice and the tone of the brand as well i obviously distilled it i simplified it as i said so it could you know people could understand it and engage with it oh it's not a bar; it's a nightclub slash cocktails. They do different music. You know what I mean? People don't want to don't they don't want to engage with I call them slashers, slasher businesses. So doing that, making sure that the entertainment was on point, making sure that the drinks were on point, making sure that the service, the security, we had the right people in the right seats. Um, I could go on forever, you know, so the management changed, the DJs changed, the, um, yeah, as I said, the branding and marketing changed. And if I wasn't the right pe- person to do anything, I also was, I'm also very good at being like, I know my limitations. I'm going to now get in a 19-year-old that can run our TikTok. Our people are on TikTok you're going to spend all this time (laughs) and (laughs) on TikTok. Now we have, what, 50,000, 60,000, whatever thousand followers on TikTok. We have videos that go viral. Um, You know, like understanding what the business actually is and should be and then expanding on that.
1: You mentioned uh, the new venue on Enmore Road. What's exciting you about that?
0: Okay, so the new venue has been a thought for a while. Um, We obviously have yeah we're on the way of dominating i suppose the agave space through Teos and cantina okay and in particular cantina okay in terms of mezcal um we want to continue that and want to continue being the you know the tastemakers of, of of tequila in particular um we think that there's space for that and we think that there's um you know space for someone to do it interestingly we're not in the uh, business of being experts, <laughs> but we are in the business of being enthusiastic about things and and bringing joy to people's lives. So we're really keen to yeah open another venue that's a really interesting and artistic space like the other venues. Um, that people can come down and they can try something, can experience something that um, is accessible and inclusive and that they can have a one in a lifetime experience and, you know, really remember that time they, they drank that tequila from that, you know, tiny town in Mexico that, I don't know, a donkey ran over with a, I don't know, whatever the story is, but feel connected to something in kind a of community and, and um, have that – have that continue the vulnerability of, of service and connection with people I just think brings us so much excitement.
1: Well, you've done um, absolutely incredible things uh, in a dynamic uh, group there. Uh, what do you love about what you do?
0: I love being part of a team, I think. It brings me so much joy, um, I don't know, being the leader – Being the leader, I think that we all, I mean, I suppose being the leader that I wish I had um, and connecting with people and being on their level and asking if they're okay and helping them get a rental because they haven't been able to get a rental in the last few weeks. And I just think that that brings me the most joy is being able to, um, yeah, creating creating a community and a space for people to have a really nice life and time in. Um, that's just, I don't, nothing can compare to that feeling of of someone having a great time with you.
1: Well, I agree with that completely. It's been an absolute honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a part of your story. Um, Daisy, please keep in touch and we'll have to catch up again soon.
0: Thanks so much. I really appreciate it.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep.